If you'll be opening your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 3. You don't have to go very far in your, in your Bible there. Just the, just the third book, Leviticus 3. We're going to be in the whole chapter this morning. And I know that uh, not a lot of people get excited about the book of Leviticus. If there were, uh, if there were a ranking of the most marred and uh, belittled books of the Bible, perhaps Leviticus would rank at the top or at least near the top. We don't know what to do with this book a lot of times in the church. Is it for us? Does it have anything for us? Do we obey what's in here? What, what's our responsibility to Leviticus? It's a, it's a difficult read. It's, a, it's not narrative like a lot of the Old Testament is. It's, it's 37 speeches. The Lord told Moses to say... And then Moses says, there are two narratives, but they're very brief and they just make the book even more disjointed as far as reading goes. It's just a, it's a difficult book to read. I understand that it describes an offering system that is, um, as foreign and intimidating at best. Uh, we, we don't, we don't know burnt offerings and peace offerings and grain offerings. What, what's the purpose of all that? What is the movements of the priest? What is what, all that? It, it gets a little hard to envision. Or am I the only one that struggles with that? When we're talking about you got to put your hand on the head and then the priest does this and then you've got to slit the throat or does the priest slit the throat? What, what happens? I have a hard time visualizing those things and it makes it feel like this, this book is unapproachable. But I would argue that it is uh, not only approachable, but necessary that we approach it. Um, as James Jordan would suggest, there's, uh, there's not a lot of variation within the movements of the sanctuary. And if we would just practice it for one weekend, go through the motions, we would find it to be the most repetitive and mundane thing ever, and it would make the most sense in the world to us. Our problem is we can't visualize. And I hope to help us visualize a little bit this morning. Uh, this, this book matters to the church today. It matters for you and it matters for me. And I've, I've come to believe that it matters much more than we may have realized. Now listen, we can understand the gospel without Leviticus. Hear me, because someone's going to walk away today saying, well, Carr said that you can't even understand the gospel without Leviticus. That's not what I'm saying. We can understand the gospel. We can grasp the grand redemption narrative of scripture without the book of Leviticus, without having a concrete understanding of Leviticus. But I, I would say that we miss, we miss out on the grandeur and the beauty of the gospel. If we miss Leviticus, Leviticus, it, it, maybe we can think of it like this. Leviticus is getting glasses for the first time. How many, I know a lot of y'all are blind as a bat like me. How many of y'all remember the first time you got glasses? You thought you saw okay, right? 
And then you got in the car, you got outside, and you saw, oh, grass has blades to it. I didn't know that. You see clearly there's, there's more detail, it's more definition. That's what Leviticus gives us. It gives us a greater clarity, greater understanding, and a greater joy in the gospel. So this morning I want to turn our attention to, Le- to Leviticus 3, where we find the instructions for the peace offering. And we're going to kind of bear down on the peace offering this morning. In Leviticus 3, verse 1, it says, If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering... If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now I'm sure every one of you have the picture in your head, right? If you're anything like me when you read that, you got lost somewhere around entrails and lobe of the liver. It's tough. All right. Well, in case you missed it, let's keep going. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock male or female. He shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then, his, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. How did you do picturing at that time? In case you weren't clear, let's keep going. If his offering is a goat... Can you picture how this is going to go? He shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places that you either that you eat neither fat nor blood. And at this point you're thinking, we've got another 45 minutes of this text. And I want you to just understand this is this is one of the most beautiful things for us as we understand the gospel through the peace offering. This peace offering, um, we give the instructions here in chapter 3 of how to perform the offering. 
in chapter 7 of Leviticus, and you don't have to turn there, but in verses 28 through 36, it's there that we learn more specifically that this peace offering is, is to have a meal associated with it, and that gives the instructions for how you are to participate in the meal. And that's important, because the peace offering is unique in that it is intended to be a meal. And we're going to unpack the uniqueness and the significance of the meal of the peace offering this morning. So there are a lot of ways that we could come to this text, a lot of ways that we can think through uh, what we're going to go. I just want to look at just five ways, five ways that we're going to respond to the text this morning. A lot of texts give you a call to action. You need to go and do this. You need to change this about your life. If the call to action uh, were expressed in that way this morning, it would be, here's how we are to worship God and magnify His name. So the first way that we're going to respond to the text this morning is we're going to recognize the significance of fellowship. I want to recognize the significance of fellowship. In Genesis, we learn very early on that there is fellowship between God and man. I think we overlook the, the incredible wonder of those first two chapters. That God and man are in harmony with one another. That man has access to God and, and un, unchecked fellowship. How magnificent that is. In chapter 3, it's one of the most devastating uh, turns of events in all of history. Is that there is this fall, this cataclysmic fall. And of all that is lost, the most significant that we see is there's this lack of fellowship. And we're going to unpack fellowship as we go. Because that may seem like it's not a significant thing. But it is, it is vital that fellowship is lost. That friendship is lost. That unity is lost. What transpired since the fall is a gradual revelation throughout the text of what was necessary for this fellowship to be restored. We see it early on in Genesis 3. There's the fall, there's the covering, there's the promise. But Genesis 4 and following, this, this remedy isn't given to us. We're told what, is, what the remedy is going to look like in, in infant form in Genesis 3.15. But we're not, we're not told how is this going to be restored. How is fellowship going to come back? We see Cain and Abel making offerings. But there's no fellowship involved. No fellowship has been restored. Noah made an offering. It was received and it, and it, was made, it satisfied God. But there was no fellowship that took place. In Genesis 15, we come the closest to seeing fellowship. That's when Abraham uh, is, is, uh, enters into covenant with God. And that covenant, it, it follows the, the pattern of the suzerain, the suzerainty treaty. But it lacks an important element of that treaty. In that treaty, it was a very uh, well-known treaty, the, the key component that sealed the covenant was that both parties came together and had a meal of the offering. And they fellowshiped over the food, signifying their reconciliation, signifying their covenant, signifying their uh, mutual interest in one another. But what happens in Genesis 15? Abraham is knocked out and God eats it. God consumes it. There's no fellowship. 
it's this glaring hole in the whole process. There's reconciliation, but there's no fellowship. Now, certainly we don't know everything that happened from Genesis 3 to uh, Leviticus 3, but there's no instance of recorded fellowship between God and man until the constitution of Israel is given at Mount Sinai. I want you to think through that. Of all the generations that passed from Adam and Eve to Leviticus, there at Sinai, fellowship is missing. And when we talk about fellowship, we're talking about the the fellowship over a meal. When we talk about the peace offering, the peace offering refers not just to uh, uh, peace and reconciliation, but the peace of friendship. And that seems to be missing here. It's not until we come to these speeches at Sinai that fellowship is brought into view. The fellowship over a meal becomes significant. And we understand how, how important that is because it's been lacking. And once you see that, that fellowship has been lacking up to this point, it creates a, a palpable loss and expectation as you read Genesis and Exodus. That there's, there's something missing here. Listen, as, as Southern Baptists, as Baptists, ah, that's, a, that's a hard habit to break as Southern Baptists. As Baptists, we know the importance of a fellowship, right? Every fourth Sunday, we know the importance of a fellowship. We gather together around a meal. Why is that time so important? Why, why do we emphasize that so much? Hey, make sure you stay and have part of the meal. If, you're, if, you're, if you didn't bring anything, be sure to stay and eat. Why do we emphasize that so much? Because around the table, we're reconciled. Around the table, we're saying something. We're declaring something. That we're part of something together. Well, it's missing up until Leviticus 3. No peace offering, no fellowship, no table service. So I want us to recognize the importance and the significance of fellowship here. And it's going to, it's going to increase, the, the recognition is going to increase as we walk through the text. And second, we're going to understand the structure of the offering system. And this is what's going, to, what's going to help us to understand why we're spending so much time on the peace offering. The, the offering system was a system that was built around proximity and distance, nearness and farness, clean and unclean. The whole system was built around that. You're either able to draw near to God or you must stay far from God. You may, you may come into the sanctuary or near the sanctuary or you must stay far away from the sanctuary. You were either clean or unclean. When we read that, we think of clean and unclean, and we might think of, of primarily uh, righteousness or sinfulness, a righteous state or a sinful state, but that's not what clean and unclean means. We need to get that thought out of our head. When we talk about clean and unclean, we're talking about being able to come into the presence of God. All of the clean and unclean designations have to do with the effects of the fall. And, and it's, it's a liturgy, it's a, it's a way of teaching and reminding the people that they have fallen from God and that curse looms over them. For example, a woman who gives birth is unclean. Does that mean that she sinned? Well, no, of course not. It's not a sin to give birth. It's actually a command of God to be fruitful and multiply. So if we're going to see clean and unclean as sin or not sin, then we're going to have to walk this dangerous line of saying, well, uh, God commands us to do things that are sinful. Nope, he doesn't do that. Furthermore, if a woman gives birth to a son, 
she's unclean for seven days. But if she gives birth to a daughter, she's unclean for 14 days. Is it worse to give birth to a daughter than to a son? Of course not. Right, Woody? That's right. Amen. I don't know what it's like to have a boy in the house. All right. Those, those things don't make you sinful. They make you unclean. The purpose of that is to designate your ability to come into proximity to God. We can get into the uh, unclean and clean designations more, but I think that uh, that's for another time. What's established here at Sinai uh, is a provision for numerous offerings. Um, Corbans is the word that's used. You're familiar with that. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for having set aside a korban, an offering that belongs to the Lord. In Leviticus, we see three uh, umbrella offerings. Uh, the olah, or the burnt offering, uh, that is uh, an ascension offering. The, the burnt offering, uh, you, you offer the animal and the entire thing is burnt up and ascends to the Lord. And that ascension is significant. Uh, it points us ultimately to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, the whole Christ passion narrative is a form of the, uh, is a fulfillment of the sacrificial system in every aspect. But the Ola, the burnt offering, is an ascension. And then you have the, the Mika, or the, the cereal offering, or the grain offering. If you're reading uh, the, the King James, like Matthew, it's going to say meat offering. That's just because meat had a broader, uh, broader range in Elizabethan times. But the, the meat, or the cereal offering, is a tribute offering. This is where you're, uh, you're acknowledging uh, God as God. He is, he is the one true king, the sovereign over your life. The mikah, the cereal offering, was always offered in uh, association with the burnt offering. And then you finally come to the peace offering, the shelamim, the friendship offering, the fellowship offering. This was uh, intended to, to be on, uh, on three different occasions. Right, we'll get to that in a minute. I'm jumping ahead. Anyway, so you've got the, the burnt, the cereal, and the peace offerings. And all of these accomplish the same thing. They accomplish a pleasing aroma to God. In 1, 9, 13, and 17, these offerings uh, provide a pleasing aroma to God. In, verse, in chapter 2, uh, verses 2, 9, and 12, a pleasing aroma to God. In chapter 3, verses 5 and 16, it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's weird language. We talked about this in our Intro to Theology class with the kids. The weird language of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Have you ever found that odd? That, that God is pleased with the smell of burnt meat. Now I love the smell of a barbecue as much as the next guy. But I don't believe that's what God's uh, intention is here. To say that he loves the smell of meat. No, what, what's happening here is uh, uh, there's a wordplay that's, that's uh, taking place with regard to uh, God's pleasure or his displeasure with the people of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, God's anger burned against Israel. You're familiar with that language. That language of God's anger burning is, is the language of uh, literally uh, God's nose becoming hot. Harar off is the, is the phrase there. And God's nose burned. God's nose became hot. 
That seems uh, like an odd way to describe it, but the Hebrew language is a, a language that is visual in nature. And, and it, it, God, throughout the Old Testament, is described as having his nose hot with Israel, burning red. But in the Levitical system, in the offerings, God's nose is satisfied. He has a pleasing aroma. We jokingly referred to this as uh, the obsession with the, with the state of God's nose. That's really what's taking place throughout Leviticus. Is God pleased or displeased with the people? The peace offering, the peace offering comes at the end of these three offerings. In chapter 7, there's a series of offerings as well. And it culminates with the peace offering. I would contend that the peace offering is the culmination of the offering system. It's not the central aspect. That would be the burnt offering or the olah. That would be uh, what the, uh, the, the Day of Atonement is centered around. It's around the burnt offering. But the peace offering is the culmination of the whole system. It was always offered in, conjun- in conjunction with the burnt offering or the c- uh, cereal offering. So we need to understand how this takes place or why this takes place or why it's important. And then we need to recognize the aspects of the offering ritual. Ritual. This is where when we read chapter 3, it kind of gets muddied down, right? So let's just think through that, okay? You've got two designations. You can have an animal from the herd or from the flock. And that, that animal, whatever it was from the herd or from the flock, it had to be without blemish. You walked into uh, the entrance of the sanctuary. You need to think of this as coming to the Lord's house for a meal. That's what's intended to be pictured here. So you show up at the door or the entrance of the sanctuary and you have your animal, your sacrifice. And you're there waiting to be received into the house of the Lord. And you lay your hand on the head of the animal. Now, we don't see any, uh, any exchange of words that takes place, but we know certainly that there was a formula or something that was said, this is why I'm offering this. This is an ola, this is a minka, this is a shalamim. What is the type of offering? The peace offering, you come and you lay your hand on the head of the animal. And there you transfer your uncleanness to the animal so that the animal may be consumed, so that you may be made clean, so that you may enter into the sanctuary. You confess, you express your reason, for the offering and then at the entrance you kill the animal and the blood is flung on the altar blood is flung on the doorpost the blood is flung on some occasions on you then there's the offering process you're you're uh, cutting up the animal and you offer the fat the kidneys and the lobe of the liver to God that's the part that is consumed by the Lord and you burn it atop of the Olah. Remember the peace offering always comes with a burnt offering. So you burn it on top of the burnt offering and it creates this pleasing aroma. In chapter 7 we learn that after the fat, the kidneys and liver are burnt, the entire animal is cut up and the breast and the thigh are given to the priest and the rest of the animal is eaten by the one making the offering. So here's, here's what you do. You go through the same ritual. It's the same ritual as the burnt offering. It's the same ritual as the cereal offering. Only this time, something unique happens. You take part of it with you to eat. The burnt offering, the whole animal is burnt up. 
the cereal offering, the whole thing is burnt up and consumed. It's given to the priest. You don't get any of it. But for the peace offering, the peace offering, you take a significant portion of it with you and you eat. Why are you doing this? Why is this important? Well, we understand, once we understand the occasions for the offering, we can see why this is so significant. There are three Three occasions, the confession, uh, a confession, the conclusion of a vow, or for thanksgiving. You would offer the peace offering as a means of confession. There were two ways to confess. You were confessing sin. We're familiar with that, right? We confess sin. We come to the Lord. I failed. I didn't obey the law. I'm coming and I'm confessing my sin to you and I'm, I'm wanting to be restored. I'm running, wanting to have reconciliation. But often the case, uh, the confession was a confession of God's goodness or his mercy or some attribute of God. That's what we see in Psalm 56, 12. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. You come to God and you confess your sin or you confess his goodness or his character. At the time of a, uh, the conclusion of a vow, you would come and you would offer the peace offering. Uh, this would be something like um, uh, maybe you had been a Nazarite and your, your time for your Nazarite vow had come to a close. Or you made some sort of promise to God, uh, like Martin Luther there in the, uh, in the wilderness in the lightning storm when he cries out, If you'll save me and not, and not kill me, I'll become a monk forever. You make your promise, your vow to God, and you, uh, you, you come and you have the peace offering uh, to, to uh, conclude that. And then finally, what we're going to focus on is the thanksgiving. You're coming with thanksgiving. There's reconciliation that's taken place. There's been discord or disunity between you and a brother, a fellow Israelite. And that has been restored. So you come and you offer the peace offering. You offer thanksgiving that there's reconciliation that takes place. But often, you're coming and you're offering the peace offering because there's reconciliation and restoration between you and God. This is what the thanksgiving offerings in the Psalms refer to. You see that language a lot of times. I'll offer a thanksgiving offering. And you're like, well, I don't see thanksgiving offerings. This is the thanksgiving offering. It's the peace offering. God has been good. God has been faithful. I'm going to come and offer this. And as you offer this, this peace offering, this this offering of thanksgiving and reconciliation, you have a festive meal in or near the sanctuary to signify that all is right. And you you know how this works. When there's tension, when there's discord, there's not fellowship. Brody and I are having a beef. We're at, we're at odds with each other. I'm not going to his house and eating dinner, am I? And he's not coming to mine. But when we come together, we reconcile. We share a meal together, right? Brody and I are fine. We have no discord, by the way. <laughs> You come with the person that has been, uh, you've been at odds with. You come with those that have, have been distant from you. And you celebrate. And there's this, this tension in the celebration. 
because you're celebrating. My brother and I, we're restored. I mean, I can't believe we let that get between us. This is great. We're, we're back together. But you're also in the sanctuary where the holy God of heavens makes his presence known. So there's joy and there's solemnity in the peace offering. We recognize that something great is taking place. But we also understand that we are in the presence of a holy and mighty God in the, in the middle of the peace offering. And this is the only offering in which the layperson could eat, which you and I would have, would have been deemed able to eat. And it had deep covenantal ties. Because it was always an acknowledgement of God's faithfulness to the covenant and a pledge to be faithful in return. All of this helps us understand the peace offering. Helps us understand what Israel was doing and why they were doing it. And it's a great little history lesson. But history lessons don't do much for us, do they? If all we do is a history lesson and we, and we have some knowledge to bank in our brains, that's, that's not helpful for us. What I, what I want us to see is that this points us to some incredible truth about Christ and the gospel that we cherish and proclaim in the New Testament. So I want us to appreciate the consequences of the offering. In this offering, you are made able to eat with God. That's the whole symbolism of the peace offering. Is that now you're able to eat with God. Remember when we walked through and we, we learned that there was no fellowship. No fellowship between uh, Genesis 3 and Leviticus 3. That there was no having a meal with God designated throughout uh, that entire span of generations. Now, now you are able to come and you offer your sacrifice. and You're made clean to enter into the sanctuary and you have table service with the Lord. It can't be overlooked. That's what's taking place. And that's the, the ultimate conclusion of Aaron's ordination in Leviticus 8. That the priests are made able to eat with God. That whole week that they're set aside at the end of their ordination, they're, they're designated as those who eat with God. Listen to what it says in Leviticus 8, uh, 31. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Aaron is made clean. And he's made able, made, uh, he's made to be able to eat with God. To have fellowship with God. He's made to also be able to perform the rites to make the people of Israel to come into the presence to eat with God. When we look at the whole offering system, not only here early in Leviticus, but also up until this point in Israel's history, God has been the only one that has consumed. And now Israel can consume. But I said that I was going to get us to the New Testament. I was going to get us to why this matters to you and me. 
Every bit of the Levitical system, every bit of the law is fulfilled in Christ. Amen? Now it's our responsibility, our privilege, our joy to learn how every aspect of the law points to Christ. To learn how it shows us something about our Lord and Savior. Here, every one of the offerings Christ fulfills in His life, death, and resurrection. But significantly, I want us to point to the, I want us to look at the peace offering because it tells us something wonderful. Uh, you go back through the, the ritual. You have to come to the, to the door or the entrance to the sanctuary and you have to lay your hand on the animal because you have to transfer your uncleanness to the clean animal. That's the way cleanness and uncleanness work. You didn't transfer cleanness to the unclean. You transferred uncleanness to the clean. But Jesus is clean. He's ceremonially clean at every aspect. In no way was he ever designated unclean as a sacrifice. And here is where everything just begins to unfold for us. Christ is clean and makes us clean. Which is significant. Rather than making him unclean, he makes us clean. So that we're able to come into the presence of the Lord. Now you're thinking, all that sanctuary talk, all that uh, Levitical uh, regulation, that doesn't matter to us. It does. Because even in just that simple, singular fact, Christ is clean and has made us clean. That is telling us something about the nature of the gospel. That we're able to come into the sanctuary of the Lord. And maybe one of the reasons that we don't comprehend how significant that is because we don't recognize fully how important the sanctuary is. That we enter into the presence of God. And we're not destroyed. Because Christ has made us clean. Furthermore, not only has Christ made us clean, but our uncleanness, our sin, was taken on His shoulders. There's a reversal that takes place. Unclean doesn't make clean unclean. Clean makes unclean clean. And then we, our our sins are transferred to him and he bears the weight of our sins on his shoulders. And as he's crucified and buried, a lot of times we want to take... We want to stop there and we think all the action of the sacrifice, all the action of the atonement takes place on the cross. And you're wrong. The action of the atonement is fulfilled. It culminates in the ascension, in the Olah, that Christ ascends. And what happens when the offering ascends to the Lord? Well, what's the state of God's nose? It's a pleasing aroma. And God is most satisfied in the sacrifice that Christ has offered. He's most pleased. And now, we are permitted to eat with God. We're permitted to come to the table of the Lord and have a fellowship meal with Him. Now when we look at the, at the peace offering, 
You take your animal, you put your hand on the animal, you sacrifice the animal, you cut up the animal, you offer the animal, and then you take a portion of the animal back and you consume it. Right? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. And when he had given thanks, Christ Jesus broke the bread and said, what did he say? This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you see what's taking place there? It's the fulfillment. It's the satisfaction of the peace offering. Your Christ has been offered. And we get to take a portion back, as it were, figuratively. And we partake of the body of Christ, signifying that we are at peace. We have been reconciled with God. Because the sacrifice, the offering, was a pleasing aroma to God. And we come into His presence because of the pleasing aroma that is Christ's sacrifice. That's incredible. But even the language there of not just this is my body, but the entirety of that statement, that declaration, that charge. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And growing up, I thought, uh, what does it mean to do this in remembrance of me? Does it, does it mean to just have fond memories of Jesus or to, to rehearse the, uh, the, the death, burial, and resurrection in your brain? What, what's it mean to do this in remembrance of me? Remember, the peace offering has deeply covenantal ties. And it was always intended to show the faithfulness of God's covenant promises. When... We're told to do this, this table, in remembrance of Christ. We're not just rehearsing the events of redemptive history. We're remembering God's covenant faithfulness. Remembrance is covenant language. That's the way, that's the way God speaks to Israel throughout the Old Testament. It's the language uh, used of His faithfulness to the covenant. God remembered Noah. Do you remember that? In Genesis 8. Genesis 8, 1. Uh, Noah's been out on that ark for a very long time. And God remembered Noah. And we know better than to think that God... Oh! (laughs) Noah's on that boat. We know better than that. God didn't forget about Noah. When it says God remembered Noah, His God is honoring His covenant promise to Noah. God remembered David. God remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He hadn't forgotten. That's the language of covenant faithfulness. And so when we're told to do this, this table, in remembrance of Christ, it's language of covenant faithfulness. That's why we come to the table. We don't come haphazardly. That's why we guard the table. That's why we fence the table. Because what we do here is saying something significant about Christ. Something significant about the promise that He has given to us. About the covenant that we've entered into with Him. We come and we remember the covenant. When we come, having an understanding of the peace offering understands what we're doing when we come. And what should be our posture when we come. We know 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we should examine our hearts. In what way? Well, 
Remember the three ways or the three reasons you would come to offer the peace offering. As a confession, at the conclusion of a vow, or for thanksgiving. So maybe you need to be confessing your sin before the Lord. Or maybe your heart is not properly praising the Lord and you need to come confessing His goodness, His faithfulness, His mercy. But more often than not, you're going to be coming with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And we, we struggle with this as Americans, okay? Because we think Thanksgiving and we think, uh, I got a nice house. I got a new car. I got some really cool new shoes. We think of the stuff. Stop thinking of the stuff. When you think Thanksgiving, think of the Bible. Think of the covenant. Think of the gospel. You talk about things that we should be thankful for. That's where our Thanksgiving lies. Be thankful that we've been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus and we've been made holy temples of the Lord and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We come with Thanksgiving. And so we come to the table. We come to the table every single week with solemnity and joy. Y'all, we're coming to the table and we're having a meal, an anticipatory, preparatory meal with the Lord. That's a joyous occasion, amen? Y'all, we're coming to the table every week with a celebratory, preparatory meal with the Lord, the holy God of creation. That's a solemn event. Amen? That juxtaposition is throughout Scripture. And it comes every week to us at the table. But the peace offering. See, the peace offering, it points us marvelously to what we do every week at the table. And it gives us a greater understanding of what we do and why we do and how Christ has made it so that we come to the table of the Lord and we eat and feast with the Lord. But I think it gives us even more as we understand we're not living a life that only enjoys this meal, but that we anticipate another meal. Have you noticed that The whole of redemptive history concludes with a meal. Jesus tells the parable in Matthew 22 of the great wedding feast. And then John lays out such a feast in Revelation 19. Verses 6 through 11. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Fellowship has been restored. But hear this. 
Not only has fellowship been restored, but it has been restored in the most intimate of ways. As a marriage union in which the two become one. In fact, when you look at the layout of the sanctuary system, and we understand the sanctuary as the house of God, and you're coming in to have table service with God, the entire sanctuary system is intended to be a prolonged wedding festivity. So that what takes place in the sanctuary are marriage rites between God and his bride. That was proclaimed, understood, and anticipated throughout Israel's history. And we as the church are to proclaim it and anticipate it as well. And we'll understand it better when we take the time to walk through Leviticus and the sanctuary system. Fellowship has been restored. And it is being restored. And the culmination of redemptive history is that we will enter into a meal with God. Fully reconciled. Fully restored in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you that you've given us this day. That you've given us the, the, your wonderful word. May we be faithful to it. Let us, let us search the depths of what we find in this book. And let us marvel at the goodness that you have revealed to us in Christ Jesus. As we prepare to take the table, I pray that we would celebrate. We would celebrate what Christ has done. That we would remember the covenant. And that we would come with solemn joy before you. In Christ we pray. Amen. At Mainerable Fellowship, we extend the table to those members, those covenant members who are in good standing. And those who are recommended to the table by members. Um, we have uh, Trevor has, uh, well, he has a whole list of people. So I'm going to miss someone. But we've got um, his sister-in-law, Maisie. His mom, Heather, and her husband, Louie. And then three brothers, Dustin, Harold, and Josiah. And then a roommate, Ben Fennel. Is that right? Did I miss somebody? All of them are coming from Heritage of Grace. They've been recommended to the table by the mayors. Then we got Zach's mom uh, from Arizona Community Church. Uh, didn't get your name. You're just Zach's mom. What was your name? Karen, Karen, uh, we extend the table to you guys. We're glad to uh, have this meal with you as we, uh, as we recognize what Christ has done. Come to the table. Behold the Lamb, communion song here. As we prepare to come, take it to the table. 